Welcome back. Welcome in to Country Roads Confidential here at earsports.com, part of the 24-7 Sports Network, a teal chip podcast, which is getting to become quite a buzz phrase in and around uh, the stratosphere that West Virginia is now occupying in recruiting our consensus five-star recruiters, Chris Anderson. Chris, welcome in. Tell me, how good is this? How much of a mirage is this? How unprecedented is this when we have a conversation about, well, let's call it a hot streak that's been a couple of months long now, I guess, when you think about the break in recruiting, but the hot streak for West Virginia football recruiting. Um, it's real, and I think... You know, obviously they've been piling up a couple commitments lately. The the most recent ones being Caden Prather, and I'm going to pronounce it uh, Tomas Thomas Remock, um, <clears throat> big offensive lineman from Ohio. Uh, both of them, uh, we've been hinted at from our national analysts. It hasn't been made official because they are doing re-rankings uh, in the middle of the month, each month, instead of just whenever they feel like it. So it hasn't happened yet. But it has been heavily hinted by our national analysts that that Remock will have or be close to a four-star rating from 24-7 Sports when that re-rank happens next week. So that could be two more four-star commits for this class, which is just kind of nuts for this time of year. And when it happened, my first thought was, wow, this is crazy, especially the Prather one. This is amazing. They're doing a great job. This is going to be the best class ever. Or this is going to be the biggest heartache, heartbreak <laughs> in about five months ever for West Virginia fans. Because I think anybody who takes a minute and and realizes what's going on with recruiting right here and thinks about it long and hard, this is going to be a class filled with decommitments. Not specifically West Virginia, but college football as a whole because kids are, recru- are committing at an absurd rate right now, higher than ever before and doing so without visits. So I think there's going to be a high decommitment rate. But the good news for West Virginia, these guys aren't ones that are just committing out of the blue, that are just committing without visits. These are, are, you know, Remock was on campus multiple times. He camped last summer. He's built up a rapport with the coaching staff. Caden Prather has known Gerard Parker for years he's been to west virginia numerous times he knew uh parker from his time at penn state went there and saw him there multiple times so these aren't flukes these aren't guys that are committing out of the blue like we're seeing in some of these other places these are guys that have built relationships with the staff have been to campus and know what they're committing to lots to unpack there including remock's name because it's going to depend on his roots he could be remock remots remotch um, mm-hmm. that's going to be a nightmare to pronounce because it looks like he's going to be a player sooner rather than later. Uh, Prather, that's an easy one too, but I do want to get into the flight risks, so to speak here. And when we had our chat with Neil Brown one week ago, part of the conversation with Bud Elliott, who knows his way around recruiting in the landscape, he's also the guy who tracks the number of commitments regularly. And on that date in 2020, they were, I want to say, almost 300 commits higher than where they were the year before. You're, you're going to see some jumps, I'm sure, from one year to the next. You're never going to see a jump like that. And Brown 
fairly blinked and predicted that you'll see a record number of decommitments there too. You have kind of given a, an idea that these aren't just haphazard takes by West Virginia. And even if they have surprised people plugged in like you, who should be, you would think theoretically aware of who's coming in and who's committing and you get a tip from the graphics guy or from the kid himself or whatever. Some of these have just been kind of random and we see the tweets and bang, it's out of nowhere, but it's calculated too. And when you look at who's here, like you said, there's not a lot of people who are just winging it, whether it's coaches or players, but you also have some players who are going to be highly coveted by regional or just interested colleges that may just say we're bigger than West Virginia. We have more resources, nicer facilities. Let's give it a shot and see what happens. Here comes bad news, Chris, but what type of, again, flight risk potential is there for this group so far? It's something that we, I, I kind of harped on this a lot last year, right around this time, a couple weeks from now, uh, it'll be a year. But when Aaron Lewis flipped from mm-hmm. West Virginia to Michigan, that one, I still remember. I think I, I can't remember if I was standing next to you. I, I can't remember if that was one of the camps you were at. But like West Virginia didn't know that he was going to Michigan, and and found out almost like at the same time. And kind of were just like, well, you know, this is this is what happens. This is what happens when you recruit against the Michigans, the Penn States, the Ohio States. It's going to happen sometimes. Uh, you know, you're not worried about losing a guy to a flip to, and, and, and no offense to whoever I'm going to say here, but like Cincinnati or <clears throat> Indiana or something like that. Like you're not worried about those type of, of flips. You think you should be able to uh, withhold a push from, uh, from schools like that. But these other programs, the Blue Bloods, the, the schools that are always finishing in the top 25 or recruiting, top 10 or recruiting, and, and have million, uh, you know, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of facilities, many of which are, are bigger and better than West Virginia's at the moment, you, you can't – worried is the wrong word, but you have to be prepared and you have to be ready to fight and you have to know that you're not going to win every single one. It's just not going to happen. Um, the good news here – you know, Millam, uh, I'm looking at the, you know, the top of the, the commitment list here with Millam and Prather, Wyatt Millam from Spring Valley and Caden Prather from Northwest High School in Maryland. The two top recruits, they, you know, obviously at Notre Dame, Penn State, um, Oklahoma, Ohio State, anybody they wanted to go to, Alabama. But both of those guys visited all those schools. They visited all those programs and visited West Virginia, and then made the decision to commit to West Virginia. Uh, you didn't really see that, like, for instance, when Aaron Lewis flipped. He committed to West Virginia after visiting and liked it, then visited Michigan again and kind of flipped. So I think I feel a little more confident that Millam and Prather will stick than maybe I did with Lewis back then. Two people I, I do want to get on, and not to pick on them here, but I'm just curious. Uh, one is the running back from Massillon, Jalen Anderson. And, and correct me if I'm wrong here, my observation is that of this run of high-level players, he was the one that really caught us most off guard. That's that's accurate, right? I think so, partly okay. because early, you know, early on he had West Virginia's list, but I think like a week before he committed to West Virginia, he did an interview with one of our Ohio guys and – I don't even think mentioned West Virginia in his top. Like, I don't think he said, this is my top five, but he was said, 
you know, these are the schools I'm talking to and mentioned five other schools and none of them were West Virginia. Mm -hmm. So that makes me arch your brow a little bit. And then Andrew Wilson Lamp, again, my perception, he, he might be a cornerback here or a defensive back here or somewhere else. He's also technically listed as a receiver. Who knows? His, his emotion may change and, and he may say, no, I want to do this instead of this. Um, and then let's just say hypothetically, he wants to play receiver at West Virginia and they say, no, we're loaded. You're going to play cornerback, hypothetical here. Or conversely, if someone says, hey, listen, you could be a full-time starting receiver here at our school, he could decommit. Um, what's the prospect on him or even that type of scenario when it comes down to the wire? Well, the the cornerback situation or position situation has been hashed out with him. He's going to be one of those guys that kind of similar to the uh, David Vincent O'Coley mm -hmm. offer. Uh, he's going to come in as a cornerback. The database, again, uh, we were talking about the re-ranks being once a month. That goes into account with uh, the position switches, and he'll get a new grade, a new recruiting grade at that time as well because he will be graded as a corner instead of a receiver because that is where West Virginia and many of the schools have told him, hey, that's your brightest future. We're going to let you play a little uh, wide receiver, uh, maybe some packages, something like that. But we think your brightest future might be a cornerback. So I think he's going to – you'll see him switch on the commitment list to cornerback in a week or two. But it is, you know, like you said, what what happens if he does start thinking, man, I'm, I'm actually really enjoying wide receiver and Michigan State or Penn State, who have offered recently, say, well, you know what? Screw it. You can play only wide receiver here. Come here. Uh, it's something you got to be worried about, especially because those schools offered after he committed to West Virginia, and and that and he's already been on record as saying he plans to take a couple of visits. So you got to watch that one. Mm. But conversely, though, we're going down the list here. You mentioned uh, Millam and Prather; they seem good. You talked about how Crowder has already cut off his recruiting. He's pretty much called schools and said thank you, but no thank you. And then just a number of the other players just seem that they have such a strong and unique bond from. Someone like perhaps Braden Dudley, who, again, maybe caught us by surprise a little bit, to a longer-standing person, um, Victor Vickstrom, for example, for out in Sweden, just different things. But it just seems like they've had enough people on board for a long time that it might not be so adventurous as we get toward December. It could be actually relatively calm if they're getting a lot of their work done right now and you know work harder, work smarter, a combination of both, then, hey, no sweat when that day comes around in December. Yeah, the guys like McLeod and Dudley, they've kind of been with the staff for a long time. Traylon Davis, for crying out loud, he's like couldn't be more of a WV fan uh, if you went searching for one. His his entire bedroom, uh, source tells me, is blue and gold. So he's <laughs> like, you know, I've never been there, but I was told that was one of the very first things he did when he committed was uh, paint his room uh, blue and gold so that he he could have it WVU colors for his future and. Wickstrom, obviously, in Sweden, and those guys aren't coming over to America for camps. So um, it kind of sucks for those guys, for, for the guys that work with PPI, the, the international program that brought all those players over to the United States to go through the camp circuit at colleges. But it's kind of good news for WVU because that means fewer people that might see Wickstrom and try to sneak in and push for him to flip. So yeah, there, you go up and down the list, and there are other schools, again, and, and Neil Brown said it, there's schools taking kids left and right without visiting, and it's more of a reservation than an actual commitment, I believe was his, his phrase. 
And here with West Virginia, you go up and down this list and it's visited multiple times, visited multiple times, visited multiple times. You know, I I think every kid on here visited at least twice, except Davis, who again, uh, lifelong WV fan, family from West Virginia, bedroom painted gold and blue. Like this is a pretty solid looking commitment list as far as how strong they are in their commitments. Yeah, can't remember the last time I saw a list with no two stars at WVU or five Ohio players. But um, the re-rank is, is what interests me a little bit here, too. A lot of eyeballs will be turning to that um, that page when this does come out just because of the the quantity and the quality of players who've joined lately. Um, it may be a while before they all move up to where they're going to eventually settle. But there are, there are whispers that Millen, he may be one of those 32 that gets a fifth star. He's close. Um, Prather and Anderson, I don't think they're in danger of threes. Maybe you know more than I do, but you mentioned uh, Remock. Perhaps he gets a four-star. Maybe Wilson Lamps re-ranking helps him or hurts him. What are the prospects here when they actually do re-rank these things? And it's not just once. They're going to do this a couple of times before signing day, but um, what do you think for a handful of these most vulnerable up or down candidates? Well, I think with Remock, it's kind of obvious with him because when I first saw him, he was a 6'4", 6'5", 240-ish pound um, kind of defensive end that was giving his you know first real try at offensive tackle. And now he's coming in at 6'6", 280. His coach says he's closer to 290. And it, you know, I think his, he played a handful of snaps at tackle offensive at, on offensive line as a sophomore, but really kind of truly played the position for the very first time this past year. And when you start thinking about that, like, holy cow, this guy's 6'6", 280, 290, just now playing tackle and already looks that good. Like, where does his potential take you? How good can this guy get? And I think that's why you saw West Virginia eventually offer Notre Dame sniffing around, Pittsburgh, Minnesota, Louisville, all sneaking in here with offers as well. So I think you know, I, I thought this already, and, and our national analysts have already been pretty clear about it, that he's a guy that could certainly be rated higher than an 86, which is what he currently holds, a, a mid-three-star rating from 24-7 sports. Going through the welcome party series that I'm doing, I'm about two weeks into it now because I'm trying to play ahead. I'm surprised by sometimes how much the consensus compares to or differs from 24-7. Like, 24-7 likes a number of the top end players in the 2020 class more than the industry. And then when you get further down, let's say the industry likes them more than the players. What are we talking about with the recruiting process, not the recruiting, the ranking process and the eyeballs on this? Why is there such a variation? But also um, historically you can look, we're pretty accurate on things like this too. It seems. Yeah. They went through, you know, they go through each year and they compare all the different recruiting rankings and how, it, it kind of fleshes out with the NFL draft because that is part of it. You know, that is the reason that 24 seven sports has 32 five star recruits because it's 32 first round, you know, NFL draft picks. And, and you kind of, it, that goes into it. How do they have NFL potential? And, and it's been proven, I think every year that they've done it, that 24 seven sports rankings have been the most accurate out of anybody in the industry but we do take that into account 
the others into account for that composite that you're referring to the 24 seven sports composite. And there is some variation there. I mean, Wyatt Millam, West Virginia or 24 seven sports has in, you know, the top 25 nationally, um, like you said, five-star ranking soon when they continue to update that he would have a five-star ranking from 24 seven sports, but the rest of the industry has him outside of the top 100, which again, it sounds drastic, but we are kind of picking nits here because you're talking these other industry, these under other ranking systems still consider him, you know, one of the say top 15 offensive tackles in the entire country instead of top five, which is nothing to sneeze at. So it's not, there are very few that are very drastically different, but um, a, a lot of times, and a lot of times it's just simply when you see them. Uh, you know, you, everybody gets to see the same film, for instance. Everybody's going to watch the same huddle video. Everybody's going to watch the same highlights. Everybody's going to see the same Nike opening uh, results and results from All-American games, where they measure in, where they run, all that stuff. But maybe you catch a guy at a college camp circuit where he runs. Like, for instance, when we saw Prather and he ran a 4.46, 4.48 at West Virginia. Now, those are hand times. Can't take those into account too far, but... Uh, you know, and then in another school, maybe he runs a four seven something and doesn't jump as well or doesn't do as well in one on one. So, I think that's where really the only difference should be, um, other than your interpretation of what you're really looking for in a, in a recruit. Because everyone, again, everyone's looking at the same huddle. Everyone's getting the same measure measurables from the Nike camps and the All American games. Um, but you got to see them more, and you got to see them in different places. And I think that's where it makes a difference for twenty four seven sports. Shift gears, exciting to talk about the future of college football played at West Virginia, but more immediate seems to be an imminent plan, perhaps as soon as tomorrow with an announcement for when and how you're going to actually have football on campus here. Um, our Brandon Marcello from our national desk of staff writers and reporters who go out and break news got his hands on a calendar that has been passed around to different people at the high programs and the heights of programs, I should say, and it basically details the return. Um, and it's pretty interesting. And what the gist of it is that we're in this period now in June where you can have your voluntary workouts, um, your virtual instruction, which is your Zoom, eight hours a week, your observably vir- virtually observable strength and conditioning workouts, whatever the heck that means. That all goes through toward the end of the month. Uh, West Virginia's phase is out on the 29th, I believe mandatory workouts would then start July 13th, which I want to point out is almost to the date of what Neil Brown imagined back in the beginning of April. I think he said like 13th, 14th, 15th, somewhere around there. And here we are on the 13th. You can begin walkthroughs and team meetings on the 24th. And then as luck would have it, 29 days before your first game, which is what happens in a normal calendar, you're going to start having actual preseason practices. That would be August 7th, which works out for me because I had to cancel my trip to Mexico and I'm actually going to take an alternate vacation August 1st through 8th. So thank you, Shane Lyons and football <laughs> oversight committee for playing along. I finally got a break here. I'm only going to miss one day. I think we'll have a pretty good pinch hitter on campus here too. But my, what strikes me about this is that the roof was on fire a month ago. Will we play? Will we have fans? Will we have an on-time season? Will it be modified? If you had told administrators or coaches or players or media 
actually, we're going to be able to pull this together and get as close to ideal as you can. And like I said, these things match up where, you know, you're getting people on campus soon here who can have voluntary workouts. Is that ideal? No. But at least they're not home until the middle of July. You're going to have people who are actually allowed to do walkthroughs and meetings towards the end of July. And you're going to start your practice. I think at West Virginia, August 7th was the start day anyway. Uh, the report date might have been the day before. That was a long time ago. But all things considered, this is a pretty tidy resolution for what has been not a tidy process. Before I get into that, I'm just really enjoying the thought of Mike Joseph watching everybody work out on like closed circuit television, like with cameras in the weight room. Is that what we're talking about here? Like when you said, you know, virtual weightlifting, virtual non-physical activities, I think is what's listed here on this calendar for like those first couple of weeks of June that they're there. It's, it's ridiculous. Like I've talked to a couple of people who are doing this right now at different schools and different conferences in different parts of the country. And, and you're familiar with the layout of the weight room at West Virginia, the strength and conditioning coach's office is in the weight room. Yeah. <laughs> like it's got huge windows. We could do it. So what do you think's happening? Like, are you telling him that he can't be in his office? He's allowed to virtually observe it. So um, as I've been told, it's, it's literally a webcam and like a monitor where you can do stuff. And there, there's a whole lot of things that are weird about this. And like, I just think it's dumb. Like, what are we doing here? You're going to, you're inviting people to break the rules here. And like, you're also telling them they can't have, I'm complaining about this way too much. You're telling them that they can't have safety um, first here, but you know, please come back and get fit. Um, it, it's really strange, but that's pretty much what it is. Like if a student athlete wants help for their voluntary workouts in their group of, I don't know, eight, 10 people. Yeah. Just log into zoom and have your S and C coach observe. It, it just seems strange. Like what are we, what are we doing here? Why are we actually doing that? It makes no sense to me, but you're right. Yeah. That's how it's going to work. And I hope Mike Joseph makes a, a, a T25 video. Like my wife uses at home <laughs> every day to, to, for all these guys to get in shape. That'd be perfect. Um, but what, what stands out to me here is um, you're going to have these kids on campus and then you're, it looks like you're going to be able to do mandatory workouts, which is going to be football stuff. And, and here's one for you, Chris. Um, people are already getting to this point now where, you know, when the players are around, they can do stuff, but they want them to observe all the, you know, the best practices and the most responsible you know, epidemiology practices here. And I have literally talked to people who said that when a coach or excuse me, when a, when a manager or somebody is watching the quarterback throw to receivers and a workout, he's not really doing it to track anything. He can't, these aren't supposed to be recorded or tracked at all who participates in how they perform or anything like that, because then it's not voluntary. But what they're doing is when the quarterback throws the ball, every receiver has his own football. So they're not sharing footballs. So I throw it to you, Chris. Mm -hmm. You're my you're my top target, of course. You're my number one receiver, but my number two receiver, my number three receiver, my number one tight end, they all have their own football. And then when my number one receiver, Chris, when you throw it back to me, I flip it to this manager, and he he's dunking it into like a disinfectant bath and drying it off, or he has a towel that is disinfected. It's like a Clorox wipe, I guess. And wipes off the ball. Can you imagine this? Like this, how long is a practice and how much do you get done when every time you're throwing a bleach ball at somebody? And I guess that's safe. I don't know, but everybody has their own ball, maybe their own towel. And cause you're wiping off someone's germs. I don't want no offense, Chris. I don't want your germs on your towel to be wiped onto my ball. 
So I would want to have my own towel too. This is such a logistical, logical puzzle. I, I, I don't know how they come up with these things and how they possibly adhere to everything. There's so many steps and processes in there that it, I think the hardest thing is not coming up with them. It's actually adhering to them. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Uh, I think the, the stickum is going to have a hard time, you know, not dissolving with all this dunking and bleach and everything else all the time. I, I don't know how that works. It's it, it's when you have that many different variables that or that many different people it's not possible to keep that up like you said if you you can keep wiping off the football but then what you got to do with the towel then you got to dunk the towel you either have to dunk the towel after every time or get a new spray on it every time or something because that otherwise you're just cross contaminating which you know people have trouble with i see them all the time where they have their mask on and they have their gloves and they think they're good but then they touch certain things with their gloves, without their gloves, switch it, take their gloves off and then touch the same things without their gloves. And it, again, it's just not understanding what cross-contamination is. And then looks like it's going to be a problem with football unless they, again, we, we talked about this a couple podcasts ago, that one kind of change to the CDC website that, hey, maybe it doesn't transfer as well on services. That was pretty big news for sports. Like, really big news for these kind of reasons. Well, the other thing that people are having an issue with is what is a, a wipeable surface? You know, what could you, what do you have to wipe down because it may get, it may transfer, it may not. And then, so like you're doing box jumps or you're doing things that you're on a box, you know, your feet don't touch it or your feet are touching it. Maybe your hands aren't. Do you have to wipe that down? You would think no, but like, what if someone sits down on it and, and puts their towel on there or they put their hand on it to tie their shoe or something. And like all these things that you're designating, this is a wipeable surface and it has to be sanitized at all times. This over here actually isn't. Well, it may be, and you just don't even notice it. So again, so many things and so many just, just layers upon layers. And every time you put one thing to the side, because it's not part of the problem that creates a whole nother set of layers that invites problems too. I just think back to my days in college where you'd play beer pong, and the ball would end up in the cup. And what would you do? You'd take it out of the cup and you'd dunk it in the one, like, universal cup of water. Like, that was supposed to clean and sanitize your ball. And I think about how crazy that was and how I never got mono or, or worse <laughs> when I was in college. And I'm thinking about, like, it's it's basically like, it's not beer pong, but, like, it's the same principle. You're catching a football and you're dunking it in the germ bucket and just winging that thing around the practice, too. And I wonder how long until someone says, there's got to be a better way to do this. Because everything is, seems like the best way right now. The inevitable next step is what's the actual better way to do this, and that's going to create another list of you know requirements too. Well, you know what the better way to play beer pong is, Mike? 
a more advanced civilization plays with okay. water water in all the cups and then you just drink your beer out of the can and you have to finish a whole can each time you play each time well not each time you play but every, if you lose you know each each cup is a third of your beer there you go whoa that is what civilized college do you go to <laughs> that's 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 moon landing stuff there i like yeah, it there you go one more on the proposed calendar too up until the Voluntary workout period ends. You get the eight hours of instruction per week, and that's just the Zoom meetings and the chats and all that stuff. The mandatory workouts are, again, it's going to be about somewhere between three and four weeks is what I understand of just they have to be there doing stuff. The level of involvement of coaches, I don't know yet. I think that's going to be a, a wrinkle that we'll have to see, maybe even iron out. What's curious to me, though, is when you have your peer, you're allowed to have walkthroughs and meetings. This is going to be that final week of July. Um, eight hours of weight training six hours of walkthroughs and six hours of meetings. You're getting pretty close there and it's only a two week period. Do you think eight hours in the weight room a week, six hours of walkthroughs, which is on the field doing stuff, no helmets, no pads or nothing. And then six hours of meetings. Do you think that's enough for a two week period to get you ramped up for when you actually get to begin program, begin practice. And then you're also subject to that five day acclimatization period. Is that runway enough? You think? I think so. I'm I'm surprised. I mean, if I were a coach, I think I'd probably want a little more meeting time on top mm-hmm. of that. But um, other than that, I think it sounds good. I think that the amount of time given for the other aspects of it sounds good. But if I were a coach, I would ask, you know, would you, would you say six hours for that week? Um, uh, like, man, that's an hour a day and then off. I'd be loving to go through more stuff, especially remotely, and especially with how much time they miss together. So um, maybe a little more there, but other than that, I think that's enough. I, I think, you know, I don't want to say less is more kind of situation, but I do think we had gotten to the point where it was almost too much, uh, too much of a lead up and too much stuff. So I think it's good. Yeah, I think you're probably right. You might have burnout now. You'll definitely have burnout then, especially when they're so close, they can smell it. Hey, just, just kind of keep them ramped up and then, you know, get that leash tight. And then when you let them off the leash, man, those first five or seven days of practice should be pretty wild, too. Um, Switch gears here. NCAA enforcement. Always thrilling and exciting. I'm very alarmed by what happened to Oklahoma State, not because I generally care. It just seems like that it's perhaps an unduly harsh punishment that's getting laughed at by not only Oklahoma State, but anybody else who seems to be in the crosshairs of the NCAA right now. Uh, Oklahoma State pretty much defied them and said it was just kind of an arbitrary ruling. The NCAA said, well, if you think this is bad, it actually could have been worse. And Oklahoma State's response was, I dare you to do this to Kansas, to Louisville, to Arizona. Not in so many words, but certainly in the intent. This just seems like, to me, the NCAA really trying to dig in its heels and show its teeth a little bit. The problem is it's had so many teeth pulled by lawyers and appeals through the years that it just doesn't seem to work. Um, Last ditch effort by the NCAA or first step toward stronger punches by the NCAA? Mm. <laughs> I don't have much faith in the NCAA. I'd love to say first step, but I think it's a last ditch effort because uh, I think we're seeing it with a lot of things. Uh, uh, not just that, but tying into what we were just talking about decisions about college football major college football and what's going to happen in the fall and how it's affected by the uh, coronavirus and everything else. And Mark Emmert and the NCAA acting like they would have say in what's going to happen when they don't. 
they really they they don't have as much as they think they do at least and so them actually kind of stepping in and doing something here um kind of surprised me i i loved oklahoma state's response of like you said basically saying you better do this to kansas then yeah you know you better do this to some of these blue blood programs that have done a whole lot worse than we did and you better hit them hard and i i absolutely love that response if you are jeff long or bill self are you worried uh i would be yeah but well, they don't seem this? to be <laughs> they how don't about seem this? to be let me say this. If you were the athletic director and the basketball coach at a program that had the level of allegations and in some cases infractions, I think the NCAA is way down that. Your name isn't Bill Self and your school is in Kansas. <laughs> Let's establish that caveat right there. Uh, you would be pretty worried about this. Like This seems like the NCAA is saying, we're serious about this, and here's how we're establishing a pattern. This goes back to probably Missouri football. You remember they had that weird bowl ban that they appealed and thought they were going to win, and no, the NCAA said, we said what we said. We meant what we said. We're good to go. Um, this is not just a random thing. They've been kind of doing this for a little bit now. Uh, BYU had a pretty one, pretty strong one too. I'm trying to think of some other ones off the top of my head here, but more of a pattern than just a flash occurrence. I think I would be concerned if I was Kansas. I would. I like the way you put that. That if this were another school not named Kansas, I'd be really concerned. But until I see it, I'm not sure I'm going to believe it. It just seems like such a good case for Oklahoma State to say. They, it wasn't steering a recruit here. It was a recruit we had and saying, this would be a smart financial advisor for you to be with. Um, as soon as they found out, they got rid of him. They had some pretty stiff self-imposed penalties. And then just the NCAA said, no, we're going to strike harder. And it actually could be worse, which kind of makes you feel like they're going to finally throw that big punch and they're going to empty their holster on somebody, which would make me concerned too, because it's a couple of schools that are coming up here. I mean, Arizona's one. Uh, Louisville's one, Kansas is one. I'm trying to think of who else is out there. At Auburn is another one where they're all kind of tied up in sneaker scandals or recruiting misdeeds. And just, I don't know. I, I think you're right that there's the threat of things getting away. And largely it's football. But what's under the NCAA's purview is basketball. And this is where it's tricky. If you're too harsh because they are your subjects, you might push them away. And if you push them away, you lose really what's their only moneymaker they make about a billion dollars off the basketball tournament it feels like um and conversely if you just let them go and like take the steroids and baseball approach or everybody likes to watch the home run well if everybody likes to watch the highly paid recruit on the basketball court um then hey you're gonna let the clowns run the circus so to speak but at least you're gonna have a basketball division and i don't know how realistic a split is but i think that's the leverage that these programs are going to um inflict here like what can we actually do to scare them into saying cut it out don't be so hard on us or else how realistic is that i don't know what do you, you think you know you know who's really excited about this the the lawyers for all of these colleges because if the ncaa actually does grow a pair and come down with with some serious sanctions for them some worthy sanctions i expect i expect one of two things and that's for either the schools to continue to try to push to kind of separate themselves from the NCAA, the, the Power Five programs. I know, like you said, it's it's mostly football in that aspect, but maybe for other sports as well. But if not that, then just a long and long and long and ugly court battle because uh, this shouldn't be shocking anybody, but Kansas and Louisville and Auburn, they're not going to go down easy 
even, you know, even if it's not football, it's just basketball. I mean, basketball is bigger at Kansas than football, but they're not going to go down easy. They're not going to just take a punishment and and say, okay, it's going to get, it's going to spend a long time in the courts before anything serious happens. TBD there. I could go over the Kansas violations in the case if you want to. I would recommend you just ask fake Bob Huggins on Twitter. He has the (laughs) He has the receipts. He is happy to brandish them. Um, wrap it up on this one, Chris. Yes. Vibrant discussion on our boards mm. about this one topic. Um, the accountability teams are coming near the finish line, and Austin Kendall's squad has stormed from the middle of the pack, maybe even lower middle of the pack, to first place. And I said, what a comeback by Kendall. Foreshadowing. And I don't know when he turned into Skylar Howard, but the response has not been warm to a joke or whatever. It leads me to this, though, because there have been some other conversations lately about Daigie was clearly better. Kendall had the same resources, the same offense, the same plays, players, talent, and Daigie did better. I'm not saying that Daigie wasn't better. Again, we talked about this when it happened. I believe I said after the Kansas State game that that really felt like it was Neil Brown's first game because he had his quarterback prepared, on the field, and healthy, and it just looked better. But I also think we perhaps overlooked the first eight or nine games that Kendall played. He didn't get to play a full nine, obviously, because of the injury and um, actually injuries, I would say. Just limited him for being who he wanted to be and who he could be, but also it wasn't working with the best cast, certainly in the first three or four games. And I think it's fair to say that the cast that Daigie had in the final three and four games was just better and in a better position because of maturation and growth and experience, but also the coaches giving him better chances to succeed and putting him in better spots. But this is obviously the premier preoccupation for us when camp comes up. Who's going to be the quarterback? How quickly does it have to happen? I don't think that the gap is enormous between the two. And I kind of think that people forget that, you know, Kendall was okay not long ago. And I think that they're, overplaying how bad he was last year. And I'm using bad in my air quotes here in the office, but circumstances really affected him that I think were friendlier to Dayi. Fact or fiction there? Absolute fact. I think everything you said there from the point of where we, (laughs) I know you needed my validation, Mike, you got it. Um, but you're right. Cause there was, I think it was the, it was the Kansas state game where we looked at the box scores and we looked at the stats and we looked at the offense and the scoring and it was all kind of, yeah, about the same as Kendall, a little bit better, slightly better, but it was one of those things where you could see it with your eyes, how he extended plays, the decisions he made, some of the balls he threw, where you said, it seems to me like the Iggy is better, but was it so absolutely clear cut that we felt the need that, you know, Neil Brown would come out at the start of spring practice and say, yeah, yeah duh, Daggy's my starter. No, I think it was going to play it out and see what happened that spring to really measure and, and see who was the better option for this year. Now, I, would I have bet on Kendall to kind of take over as the starter this fall? No, I would have, I would have stuck with Daggy just knowing what I, I knew from last year, but it wasn't, that big of a difference. It wasn't so drastic that it, he couldn't overcome it. So I, I think you're spot on there. So what do you think the effect is of not having spring ball and I would think really leveling out the playing field by not having them on campus where they can go out and throw on the field or, or 
on the practice field and really develop a rapport with, you know, Daigie and the top three receivers or whatever. Um, and just letting guys have to work on body mechanics, watch a lot of tape. My hunch is that it really, I mean, I don't want to say erases, but it closely erases the distance between Daigie and Kendall as far as it matters to Neil Brown, which again, he's going to know the on the field stuff, but when he's looking for intangibles or when he reaches that point where, as he likes to say, you know it, you just know it. I think it makes it a little bit more friendly to Kendall and it probably helped him out a little bit. And then I wonder like the amount of time that they're going to have until they have to make a decision. I think that's going to help Kendall too, because if, if he's ahead, I don't think you give Daigie as much time to catch up. Conversely, if Daigie's ahead too, then obviously Kendall isn't. But my theory is that if they're closer than, than a lot of people think, and if the situation, like I said, erased the distance between the two or close to it, if one guy takes the lead, it's going to be harder for the other guy to make it up. And the coach is going to be, I think, more reserved because he's got to move forward with his guy sooner than later. I think this actually works out for Kendall. Does it work out for West Virginia? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm very curious how he evaluates this because I think I it was I know you mentioned it. I, I think you wrote a whole story on it too, but about how this staff and, and the analysts and everybody were charting like literally every throw and everything they did at all the practices all the way back to the previous year through the summer and using that information to decide who was better. And and obviously Daigie was hurt to start last year, so that kind of threw things off. Don't really know how he compared to Kendall as far as what those, what that data would have shown. But if you don't have that this year, you know, if the, your last data point is what, uh, you know, I, can you even count that first week of spring practice, those first two days that uh, I think West Virginia got before everything got shut down? Or are you it was talking, a bowl prep, right? Right. So you're going all the way back to November or practices back then to kind of determine um, how they fit in that. Or if they – kind of scrap that or if it's a revised shortened um, analysis of just fall camp work or just workouts in the summer, whatever they can get. Uh, it's interesting. I, I, I'm i very curious how he's going to attack that and make his decision. I do think Daigie's better. And I think he has some advantages that people don't really realize. Um, look, Kendall's older. Daigie had more experience as a player, as a starter in that offense, for sure. Um, Kendall, I don't know how, quickly he was injured with the hand i do know that 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 knee brace and then some some injury with the, some issue with the foot he was not 100 percent when the season started and he never got back to 100 percent. then he got his bell rung and was out for a game so i mean was he ever fully healthy what if he's healthy now i mean and he's more comfortable in his his year in the system maybe last year was year zero for austin kendall <laughs> and and he gets a, a fresh set of eyes on everything, and he's good again, and he's feeling comfortable and confident, and he gets some of that blue-chip mentality that he once had. I, I just think that, yeah, Daigie had more built-in advantages that people don't recognize, so of course he was better. Can he maintain those advantages? Can he take that lead and kind of make Kendall a little bit smaller every day in the rearview mirror? Or is Kendall a competitor who is comfortable in the system now? He's got his body right. He spent the summer working on footwork and mechanics that perhaps – he wasn't as familiar with or weren't as um, emphasized at Oklahoma as they were at West Virginia, because you did get that a lot from Kendall last year and from even Daigie a little bit, that the the obsession with fundamentals and footwork and the mechanics here was something that they had not experienced at their prior prior schools. Maybe Kendall's just more comfortable with that right now. Um, higher rated recruit, better talent coming out of high school. 
not by accident. We've talked about the evaluations and the rankings. He was up there, man. I mean, he was up there in that recruiting class, and because he had earned it and he had passed the eyeball test, a lot of people, at the very minimum, it's a good situation for West Virginia in a really unusual offseason. Yeah, it's always nice. And I think West Virginia, again, the, the university, the football program, also may have been helped out here because what's the situation there if, say, the spring practice happens and one or the other clearly wins the job you know you put the other in a bind put the other in a tough spot and maybe they transfer but now that that's not happening it kind of assures that both of them will be there keeping West Virginia with at least two very good options at quarterback for this fall yep silver linings I guess Mm -hmm. that's about all here Chris we kept it under an hour uh one of these days (laughs) not too bad um and I don't, yeah, I don't have anything else to add. I was going to say, I was looking at my chart for the rest of the week. We got updates coming on, on recruiting stuff. We're going to keep the daily buzz going. I'm going to be checking in with recruits, talking to a few commits um, on their thoughts about how, you know, a few of the early commits, excuse me, on their thoughts about how this class continues to build momentum. Uh, let's just say there's there's some buzz that's going to be in that buzz for the rest of the week because they are excited about that. Oh, man, how about that? <laughs> the hook. All right, well, I'll have to wait until another time, but that is all for this time. For earsports.com, I am Mike Casazza. And I'm Chris Anderson. We'll talk to you later.